uh, how do you think about your work? And you know, in just a week, your students will be going back to school, and uh, you teachers will be back in the classroom, and uh, the rest of us will be continuing our, our regular work. How do you think about your work? What is your attitude? The title of this morning's message is Take This Job and Love It. In contrast to what other people want to do with their job, believers should love their job. And we want to explore this morning your heart, and whether you have a good attitude or bad attitude, I believe God's going to speak to you about your relationship to Him in the workplace. I did a lot of reading in terms of research for this to try to discover some uh, observations about people's attitudes in the workplace right now. And I found three things that I gleaned that showed up consistently. One was workers are bored. Employees are bored. Uh, most of the research pointed to roughly about a third of the people in the workplace feel like that they are actively engaged when they're at work. That means two-thirds don't feel like they're engaged when they're at work. They're bored. Another observation was that most people are dissatisfied in the workplace. One study I found that's been made every year since 1989, it finds that about 53% of all the workers in, the, in America are dissatisfied for one reason or another with their work. So they're bored, they're dissatisfied. But there's another observation I found. Most people are restless in their work. Did you know that the average employee or worker will change jobs anywhere from seven to 15 times over the course of a lifetime. They average just 12, 12 different jobs over the course of their life. The average longevity of a job is less than five years. And so most people aren't staying very long, so they're restless, and they're not staying put, and they're dissatisfied, and they're bored with their work. Now put a Christian in that equation. Put a person who knows Christ in that equation. What should their response be? What should the research show about Christians in the workplace? And our conviction as we look at Scripture today is that it's not only possible, it is a calling that you and I should love our work. How can you do that? Well, first of all, the first way to love your job is to get a new boss. Get a new boss. Amen? Uh, don't say it too loud. We're, we're, we're being recorded, okay? Um, get a new boss. In a study that was released in March of this year, it was reported that one in two employees in the American workforce have left a job, not because of money, not because of benefits, but because of their supervisor that they didn't like. One out of two has had that experience at some point in their life. In fact, in most studies, the single greatest determining factor and whether an employee was bored or dissatisfied or restless was their relationship with their supervisor. And so it stands to reason that if you're going to love your job, you've got to have a boss that you can love. You need a new boss. Well, who's the boss of a believer? When Paul wrote to the Colossians and answered this question for you and me. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, if you're struggling in the workplace, I would commit this one to memory. And I would recite it to myself however many times a day I needed to in that workplace. Here's what Paul says. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. You see that phrase? As to the Lord and not to men, knowing from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve 
the Lord Christ. And so that makes a difference, doesn't it? You may have an earthly human boss that you can see and respond to, but for the believer, your boss is the Lord Jesus. And you do what you do ultimately to please him, to honor him. What a difference that would make when you and I are tempted to complain about the boss, to gripe about the boss, to, um, and we always have a negative attitude about the boss. And, and yet here you put a believer in the mix who understands the truth, and they love the Lord Jesus, and they're doing what they're doing for him, and they're not complaining. And they have a whole different mindset and a different attitude. It changes the way that you see your work in this way. You no longer at that moment have a career. You are living with a calling. Every person here has a calling from God. And your calling in the workplace is to lift him up and to honor him. And when you think in terms of a career, well, then you're always thinking about promotions. You're always thinking about advancement. You're always thinking about the next career step. You know, if you looked at my resume, my resume, and you looked at the steps that have been made over the years, you would say, what does he want to be when he grows up? Because it, it doesn't have a definable career path. Well, I didn't get in this business with a career path. I just follow the Lord. And that's what he calls each of us to do. What is the next thing you want me to do, Lord? What's the next step? Are you in this decision? Where are you in this decision? And then when you're in that workplace, when you're in that assignment, when you're a student in the classroom, wherever you are, why do you do your homework? Why do you do your studies? Why do you do your assignments at work? Why do you knock that stuff out? Why do you work hard? Why do you do those things? Because I love Jesus. And we do it for him. So it changes your attitude from one of looking at your job as a, merely a career to one of a calling. It also helps you when stuff gets tough, when the person in charge makes decisions that you think aren't right, when they make unjust decisions, when, when they make decisions that you feel like uh, mean that they don't appreciate you, when your meaning, your, your sense of significance at work is lost, when you get a new boss, all of that can change. And you put your hope and your trust in him. Get a new boss. If you want to love your work, get a new boss. Then secondly, take a day off. Take a day off. I want to tell you a great story. It begins in the book of Genesis. The creator made everything. Made you, made me. And as that story unfolds in Genesis 1, this is not on the screen. You may just want to jot it down. Genesis 1, 1 to 5. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. And you know what comes next? The next six days. Now, what's interesting, and we see it here in, in uh, Genesis 1-5, so evening and morning were the first day. The way days were established, the rhythm of days, is different sometimes, I think, than the way that we comprehend a day. We think of a day beginning in the morning, don't we? And yet, at creation, when God was at work, the day began when? In the evening. And so there's a rhythm that's established in creation. Evening, morning. Evening, morning, evening, 
morning. What do you and I do in the evening? What we should do? Rest. Our day, in the Hebrew conception, the way that's described in Genesis, our day begins in the evening with rest. And so the rhythm that's established in Scripture is rest, work. Rest, work. Sleep, wake. Rest, work. And then we see another rhythm that begins to form. We see that he worked for six days, and then he comes to the seventh day, and God stopped everything. He calls it the Sabbath, and he practiced it. He stopped. He quit. He ceased and desisted. He, he rested. God, God stopped what he was doing. And we see another rhythm in the text. You work six, and you rest one. Six, one. Six, one. Six, and one. And so this principle of rest is embedded in creation. I can't do anything about it. Now, if you jump ahead, and uh, let's pretend for a moment that you're one of the Israelites who's been kept in captivity for generations by Pharaoh and his descendants. And you've been a slave, and you've been in a brick-making business without pay, and you've been working seven days a week your whole life. And everybody you know has been working seven days a week. Well, then God steps in. He sets his people free using Moses. And then what happens? He says to him in Exodus 34, verse 21, listen, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Now that hurts, doesn't it? I mean, there's times when you've got to get to work, especially on a farm. But he makes a very point. He says in plowing time and in harvest, your busiest time, stop, day seven. You have got to rest. Now think about that for a moment. Here's a group of people. They've been working for seven days a week, all their lives, and suddenly God says, I want you to work six and rest one. Can you imagine a former slave saying, wait, no way. If I want to work seven days a week, who are you to tell me I can't? No one has the right to make me stop working. How do you think the other slaves would have looked at that guy? They would have said, you're crazy. We would have said, they're the best employee we got. They're the backbone of our organization. They work like a dog, and they do it for peanuts. You know, I mean, we'd brag on that employee. We'd brag on that person. The, the slaves, though, would have said they were crazy. When I get busy working for long periods with no rest, this is me. My attention becomes focused on this world more than the next. I have trouble hearing God. Because when I'm working that much, I'm not listening to God. I lose my worship. I lose my mission. I lose my own sense of calling. I forget who He is, and I forget what He has done for me. And so why is it so hard for you and me to stop, to slow down and put on the brakes and stop? One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 127, speaks to this. In verse 1 it says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. When I get overworked and when I'm working uh, out of control, I'm thinking that if this house is going to get built, it's because I'm going to build it. When I'm not resting, when I'm not stopping, I'm thinking if this city's going to be guarded, it's because I'm going to guard it. I'm going to keep it safe. And the problem with that is it leaves God out of the picture. It puts my eyes, my attention, my energy, my focus, my affection, my life on those things. And it leaves God out. 
It goes on and it says, It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. When I'm working like that, when you're working like that, we're thinking, I can't afford to stop. i got to work longer. got to get up earlier. got to work later. It all is going to depend on me, and so I've got to work these long hours because it depends on me, and if I don't, it's all going to cave in. In contrast to that, he says it's useless for me to live that way. For so he gives his beloved sleep. When you rest, you're making a statement about your belief in God. When you rest, you're saying, God's going to take care of me. When you rest, you're saying, it doesn't all depend on me. And I'm trusting him to take care of me. You're saying, well, Don, you don't understand. You just don't understand. I wish you and I could sit down with a cup of coffee, and I don't even drink coffee. Because I think I do understand. I've been there. You know, when I was a kid, I used to ride my bike all over the place. Were any of you like that? I rode my bike everywhere, everywhere. And starting about age seven, I would disappear for the whole day. I don't know what my mother was thinking. I would just disappear. And uh, we lived on military bases, so I guess she figured as long as I was inside the barbed wire fence, it was okay. And I rode everywhere. You know, today, Homeland Security would have arrested me as a potential terrorist because I rode my bicycle to dumps that were restricted. I probably glow in the dark when you turn off the lights because I played in that stuff. I'd ride to the end of the runway. I'd lay down on the runway on my back, you know, just just looking at the clouds and then watching as a big C-130 or some other plane would fly overhead, like like right there, (laughs) just fly overhead. I had a BB gun. I could have shot it down, you know. And I rode my bike everywhere. I got run out of more places that were restricted than I can remember. They'd always say, who's your dad? You know, and I wouldn't say Captain Robert Fusick. I'd say always somebody else's kid's dad, <laughs> you know. And, um, and so, you know, that was the thing. Now, now, when I would ride my bike, it wasn't that hard. I mean, I just spent the whole summer riding my bike. I was glued to the seat. And, um, but there were times when air would go out of my tires. And I didn't let the air out of my tires, but, but the tires would need to get pumped up. Now, I could ride that bike with underinflated tires for a while, and it wouldn't bother me that much. I, I could go and, and still go. I, I went all kinds of places with underinflated tires. But it was so much easier if I would get my bicycle pump out, put it on the, on the valve, and pump that tire back up. Now, your life is that way. Your life has, when you're in relationship with the Lord and you're trusting Him and He's your boss and He's your guide and you're spending time with Him, you're, you're receiving the breath, of the refreshing that comes from the presence of God. It's like air in your tires. But then as you go through your day, let's say you have a difficult conversation with someone, it may not be anything necessarily directed at you, you just have a tough conversation and some air goes out of your, your life. And then you face overwhelming circumstances for somebody. Something happens that was unexpected, and suddenly you're burdened down and you're weighted down with some kind of worry or anxiety. Some more air goes out of your life. And just one thing after another happens in your life on day one, day two, day three, day four, and you're in the day 15, day 18, day 20, and you haven't stopped, you haven't rested, you haven't caught your breath. You can pedal for a while like that, but you're doing it on an underinflated life. And you desperately need the refreshing that comes from the breath of God. You need Him to fill you back up. 
You need the refreshing that comes from him. You say, basically, Don, how do you do that? Can I just suggest very simple, the, a word picture, a picture in, in my mind that helps me. i got to stop what I'm doing. Even if it's in the middle of the day, I can just close my door. I can go in my car. I can go to some room in my house. I can go somewhere, just take a walk, and stop what I'm doing. Now, here's what I do. I have to get my eyes off of building the house, off of guarding the walls, off of thinking it all depends on me. I've got to get my eyes off of that. And I've got to put my eyes on the Lord Jesus. So you stop what you're doing. You shift your gaze from all your problems, all your pressure points, everything that's happening, and you put your attention on Christ. Now what happens at that moment, if you're really focused on him, you have a tendency to forget the rest. It's what happens when you and I truly worship the Lord. And worship is not just what happens on Sunday morning, is it? When you and I truly worship the Lord, we are surrendering to Him all the time, 24-7. So when I do that, I shift my eyes to Him. I can take those questions, I can take those pressure points that I don't have answers for. I can take all of those difficulties and I can lay them at His feet and say, Lord, here, you take it. I can't handle it. And in that moment then, before Him, with your eyes on Him, He'll begin to refresh your heart. And you forget, I mean, the stuff that's here, it seems like it's so important, but you know a hundred years from now it won't matter. And he begins to guide you, and he says, okay, here's what you need to do next, son. Daughter, here's what you need to do next. And he begins to guide you. And things begin to come together, and you be things begin to make sense, and you, you figure out what the next step is. You don't have all the answers, but you put your eyes now on Jesus. And you can begin to walk again. And you've got some air pressure in your life from the Holy Spirit. So how do you love your job? Get a new boss. Take a day off. You've got to catch your breath. Here's a third thing. Play hard. Play hard. What do you mean by that? Well, I think you ought to have fun at work. I know we do here. Um, Y'all remember the red chair stories from last summer? If, you, if you're new here, you won't remember that. But we had the, a red chair that we encouraged Sunday school teachers to, uh, to understand that we have people that, that are not here in our church or any church this morning. 75% of the people in Wynn, Arkansas are not in church today. That's about 6,000 people in Wynn. About 75% across county. That's about another 12,000 people. 18,000 people within minutes of this auditorium are not in church. And so we encourage our teachers to say, you know, if we really, really believe the power of the gospel to change life, what we need to do is we have our Bible lesson, we have our Bible study time together, and then we get that chair out and we say, look, just take a moment, think class, think class for a moment about somebody you know that needed what happened here today, that needed what we studied, that needed to hear that. And let's pray for them. Empty chair, red chair. And we were Ill, really emphasizing that with our adult classes. And we still are. And we will continue to do that. Well, Todd works with our children. You all know Todd may know. You all know Todd. I know his family does. And Todd, Todd um, uh, is our pastor of children and families. And Todd said one time in a staff meeting, I think Dustin had something to do with this. Had, he said in a staff meeting, he said, you know, why don't, do I get a red chair? I really want a red chair. And he was really making an issue of the fact that he wanted a red chair. So he comes into work the next day, and his office chair is gone, and there's a little red metal chair in its place right in front of his desk. 
And um, so stuff like that, you know, we need to play hard. When I worked at the Baptist building, our business manager was a man named Dan Jordan. He's since retired. Precious, godly man. And Dan, um, Dan always loved to play practical jokes on people. His favorite was April Fool's Day. That was his holiday. And he always sent out memos to the staff, you know. And, uh, and they were serious, and there were things we had to do and adjustments we had to make. And on April Fool, he sent one out one year that said that the water coolers, where you got your water if you needed a drink of water, it was no longer going to be free because employees were drinking too much water. And so if you were going to continue to drink from the water cooler, you had to sign up in his office, and then they were going to deduct a small amount from every paycheck. Well, nobody believed that, but one guy did. And he got mad. He said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pay for water. Employers should provide the water at the water cooler. I'm not going to pay for that. And this goes on for weeks. He brings his own bottle of water to work. He just feels really justified. And finally, one of the other staff members asked him, said, why are you doing that? He said, because Dan said I had to pay for the water. He said, no, you don't. He's pulling your leg. It was April Fool's. That upset the guy even more. <laughs> the next April Fool's, Dan sent out a memo to everybody. And uh, he was really aiming it at the secretary. He's trying to get them all riled up, you know. And so he said, um, you know, uh, in the memo it said you can no longer use electric fans or space heaters in your office cubbyhole. You know, you can't use them anymore. Because the air was never right for anybody. Too cold, too hot. It's kind of like on Sunday morning. And it was never right. And so ladies had their own space heater, had their own fans. You can bring yours if you want. And they would bring that. To the office. He said, you can't do that anymore. And so at lunchtime, led by the guy that had been tricked by the water cooler memo, Dan goes to lunch. When he comes back from lunch, his entire office is filled with about 35 offices worth of space heaters and fans. All over his desk, all over his chairs. Wasn't that big an office. You couldn't even walk in there. Play hard. What I really mean by playing hard is this. In that passage of Scripture we read in Colossians, when we talked about getting a new boss, he says in Colossians 3, verse 23, and whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, he says, do it heartily. With all your heart. Literally, it means from the soul, do it. One of the reasons we don't love our jobs is we don't, we don't love the Lord Jesus enough to do what we do for Him with all our heart, with all our passion. We'd rather sit and gripe. We'd rather sit and complain. We don't want to get in there and work for Jesus. We don't even have a conception that that's what we're doing here. And so we go into our workplace and we get in those office clutches where there's always the drama, always people complaining, always people whining, always people gossiping, and instead of being a bright light in a dark place, we're just part of the darkness. And in contrast to that, the Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, that would apply to work, that would apply to being at home, that would apply to anything, doesn't it? Whatever means what? Whatever. Whatever you do, do it from the soul. Play hard. Do it for Jesus. And when you do that, you're going to win the respect of everybody around you. Because they're not going to know you're the kind of man, kind of woman, that when you get an assignment, you knock it out of the park. 
When you're a student, you get that homework assignment next week, you knock it out of the park. You don't do it just for the grade. You don't do it just for the raise. You do it for him. Play hard. I know one church I worked at one time, I was, we had a staff member. It was a large church. We had a staff member that was really crashing and burning. They were in trouble. Bad attitude. Felt like their, their whole sum and the worth of their job was in their paycheck. They saw what they did in a ministry role as a, as a, like, a like an hourly position. And let me tell you what, ministry is not an eight-hour-a-day job. It's 24-7. And, um, and you've got to rest. You've got to carve that out. But there's certain kinds of work where you're never off the clock. And when people are hurting, that doesn't always happen between 8 and 5. And so this particular person, our office hours ended at 4.30 at that particular church. And if you were standing in their doorway, you were going to get run over. And I asked them about that one time. I said, why are you always in such a hurry to leave at 4.30? And they said, because they don't pay me enough to stay here past 4.30. Can I tell you that that's not playing hard? What time do you get to work? When you get to work, what time do you start work? You know what I'm talking about? You know, some people get to work, but they don't start working until sometime after that. They may clock in and then immediately sit down and have a cup of coffee. They're not at work yet. And can I just tell you that while you may never steal a piece of office equipment and take it home from your employer, that if you don't work when it's time to work, that's a kind of theft. And it is absolutely vital that you and I learn to shine by playing hard. Do what we do. When it's time to work, let's go to work. When it's time to rest, let's rest. When it's time to work, let's go to work. Number four, how do you love your job? Get a new boss, take a day off, play hard. Then number four, make a difference. Make a difference. You know, we don't think of our jobs as something of honor, of, of calling, that, that God has put you where you are for a mission, for a purpose, but we need to. I thought about this, and uh, there were at least four things that came to mind that I would want to say about your job. Whatever it is, whether it's a stay-at-home mom or student or you're on the farm or in a workplace, what's the purpose of your job? First, your job is about meeting needs. It's about meeting needs. Your needs, the needs of other people. But it's about meeting needs. It's not about profit. It's about people. Now, you can't take care of people if you don't make a profit. You know, we understand that, right? I mean, it's American way, but it's also biblical. You can't take care of people if you don't make a profit. But at the same time, ultimately, what are we trying to do? We're trying to take care of people. We're trying to meet needs. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. And so it's not just about food on my table. It's also about giving, helping and meeting needs. A second reason that you work. Your job is about changing lives. It's about changing lives. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 1, Paul says to the Corinthians, none of them were Christians before he came to Corinth. He comes there and he says, are you not my work in the Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? 
He comes to this place. It is the most seedy, dark, morally corrupt place you can imagine. He comes to that place and he starts a church and it starts it with men and women who know Christ and they have become clean and they have changed. They become new people and he says, are you not my work in the Lord? Now can I just say to you that that's the same kind of mindset you should have about where God has you. Wherever he has you, Wherever you call your work, wherever you spend your time, there are people that he has around you. There are people you work with. There are people you work for. There are people you connect with. That is your world, isn't it? That's, that, those, are, those are people around you. And you may look at them and say, well, I like that person. I don't like that person. That person annoys me. That person gets on my nerves. That boss, if he ever worked a day in his life, you know I mean? We, we have all these attitudes swirling around in us. Have you ever thought that you're in that place with those people and that that is your work. Those people, they are your work. They are your mission field. And that your assignment is not just to work with them. Your assignment is to show them Christ. Your assignment is to love them into the kingdom of God. How cool would it be to walk into an office or a workplace where there are no Christians and to leave one day and you've left Christians behind? Your job is about changing lives. Thirdly, your job is about building up other Christians in the workplace. When you do have Christians there, how should you relate to them? It's not just somebody you go to church with. You're talking about family. You're talking about a brother. You're talking about a sister. You're talking about somebody who's a father in the Lord to you or or a mom, or something, but their family. How do you respond to them? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16 says, from whom the whole body join and knit together, talking about Jesus, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working, here it is, by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So when you have a brother or sister in the workplace, your primary assignment to them is to have that boss, you're serving Jesus, you're, you're making sure you're putting air in your life, the Holy Spirit in your life. But then the other believers in the workplace, God has called you to build them up. You have a share in their growth. It's not just what happens on Sunday morning. Take away the building. Take away the rooms. Take away the property. Take away the chairs. What would we have left? Just us. People. Sometimes I think, wouldn't it be better if it was just us? And when we go in the workplace and we find a brother and we find a sister in Christ, God doesn't have you there by accident. He has called you as part of the body of Christ to build up that man, to build up that woman. Some years ago, I, I worked in an environmental engineering firm in South Louisiana. I did it for a number of years, bivocationally serving two churches that couldn't support me full time. So I worked in an engineering firm. And there were, when I first went there, uh, there was only one other believer there. And then after a while, a couple other guys were hired, the engineers, and they were brothers in the Lord. They were Christian Mississippi State fans, but they were still brothers. And, um, and we said, hey, you know, this work is pretty challenging uh, because it's consulting work. We would put out proposals to uh, refineries and chemical plants and that sort of thing. And we had to wait for them to, to say, yeah, we'll hire you and approve that proposal so we could get onto a job. 
And so there was a lot of faith involved in that. If you work in that kind of a business, it's like being a farmer. I mean, you, you can't control always the outcome. You're trusting God to, to turn those proposals loose so somebody would give us work. And so, you know, it's a great place to pray about something, about your job. And if you're not praying about your work with somebody, you ought to. And so we would, um, we would get together at 7 o'clock. Work started at 8, officially. We would get together at 7. We'd get into an office, and we would, we would pray over our work. And we would pray for clients, men and women who worked in different departments and refineries and stuff that we knew didn't know Jesus, and we would pray for them. And there were times where, in my favorite story, and I've shared it before, but, man, I love what happened on that particular day because it made a point. Uh, we didn't have enough work, and there were other men and women. They all had families. They all had, we didn't need just a profit to make money for the company. We wanted to put food on people's tables. They had kids, families to support. We said, oh, God, we don't have enough work right now. And uh, before we prayed that one particular morning, I, I told the guys, um, one of them was named Jim. I said, Jim. I said, uh, you know, it, it just, it's been our experience, just one phone call, one phone call, and we could be busier than we want to be. I said, let's, let's pray about that. And as I prayed, God brought to mind specifically that instance in the life of the disciples where they'd been fishing all night and caught nothing. And I had this picture on mine, and I just prayed. I said, oh, God, just like you led the disciples to put the nets down one more time, oh, God, we're just going to trust you to fill the nets. And we prayed and we said amen. And I promise you, it wasn't 15 seconds after I said amen. The phone rang. It wasn't 8 o'clock yet. But Jim reached over and picked up the phone. And he talked to that person. Within five minutes, we had one of the largest projects given to us we'd ever had. Several hundred thousand dollars worth of work. And we had more work to do. We had to go hire people. We had so much to do. Do you think that that encouraged or discouraged the believers in the workplace? Do you think that built their faith or weakened their faith? Do you think that magnified the Lord because everybody knew in the office it wasn't a Christian that we were praying for work? Do you think that makes a difference in the workplace? Your job is about building up other Christians to encourage them, to strengthen them, to help them. When their attitude goes bad, say, hey, brother, hey, let's pray about that. We serve Jesus, right? We serve Jesus. Let's, let's work on that mindset. Let's work on that attitude. The fourth thing is your job is about being a bright light for God in a dark world. It's about being a bright light for God in a dark world. Matthew 5, 16, one of the most intimidating verses to me personally. It says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. They see what you're doing, and as a result of what you're doing, because you've identified with Christ and you're serving Christ, they see what you're doing, but they know why you're doing it. They know what, what's going on inside your heart. And so they say, man, I don't know about this God business, but the way that guy works, the way he trusts, the way he, he glows for Jesus, he said he serves a great God. You know, that's what we want to happen. And so we pray with people. We want to encourage people. We pray with them in the workplace. We seek to encourage them. We seek to bless them. When I worked there, and, and um, uh, God blessed our work at that point, and, um, and there were people that came to know Christ in that office. There were uh, men and women that didn't know Jesus, that trusted him. There were people I got to invite to church that would come. You know, the, the nationally, 83% of Americans are not in church today. 
83%. Studies have shown that they would come to church if a Christian invited them to come. We're not even talking about sharing your faith. We're just talking about an invitation to come to church. Most people will accept that invitation respond to that. More will than not. In the same research, they've also shown that less than 2% of Christians ever invite anybody to church. That's 2 out of 100 ever invite anybody to come. And uh, in the workplace, you have this wonderful opportunity where you work with people, where you can do that, where you can invite them to come. Uh, I had five different managers in five years. That managerial position in that office in Lake Charles, Louisiana, was a killer. Whoever took that job, I could just mark the calendar and start counting down because it just was too much. It was humanly too much for one person to do. And because I became a point of continuity in the office, I, was, I kept telling them I was temporary. But eventually I became manager, but, but they would have a guy that was officially the manager of the office, but I sort of was the office behind-the-scenes person. And when that person would come in, I knew the clock was ticking, and I knew they were going to get in a hurtful situation. I knew this job was going to suck them dry, and so I would begin to try to build a relationship with them, talk to them, try to encourage them. One of those guys, his name was Michael. He was a Vietnam War veteran. He had had a horrible time when he got back from the war. He had used drugs. He had had problems with alcohol. And then he took a turn in life. Didn't have anything to do with Christ. But he decided to make a change. And he went back to school, finished his education, and, um, and began to work hard. And he had, he had come into this position of being manager of that branch office for that engineering firm. And I watched as the job just began to press him and press him and press him and press him. And he knew a group of us knew Christ. And he knew that we prayed each day. And I can't tell you how many times he would burst into our little prayer meeting before work. He was usually there at 6 a.m. He would burst in. We'd start praying at 7. He would burst in 7, 10, 7, 15. He said, hey, guys, would you send one up to the big guy for me? Thanks. And he'd shut the door and leave. Now, that shows you the level of theology that he had. You know, send one up to the big guy. But we would. We prayed for Michael. We prayed for everybody in the office. And as the, the job wore him down, he, he began to struggle again with alcohol. He, he lost his wife and daughter. He had a young daughter. And, and they left him. And he, he had a nice home. He lost that. He was living in a little apartment. And one night, he called me at home. He said, Don, I need to talk to you. Can you come over? I said, sure. And I asked Gail to pr be praying. And, and I left the house, and I drove over to his place. And he was just wrecked emotionally, just, just broken. He said, Don, I know that you talk to God. I know that you and Jim and the others, they, you talk to him. He said, he said, tell me, tell me, would you, how God can help me. He really said that. And I said, brother, I'd love to. And I sat down and, and I took the scripture and I shared with him how Jesus loved him. God loved him. No matter what he had done, that God loved him. And that God had taken everything that he had done was, that was wrong and, and, um, and that those things he had done wrong because God is just and holy, they have to be punished, and that there was nothing Michael could do to take that away, but God could. And that when he sent Jesus to die for him on the cross, that Jesus died for everything that he had ever done to offend God. That when Jesus died for Michael on the cross, he took all those sins on himself, and he, he died for Mike, with Mike in mind, and those sins could be forgiven if Mike would trust Jesus. And I said, Mike, when you trust Christ to forgive you for your sins, he'll not only wash you clean of your sin, give you a clean slate, forgive all your sins, he will also send his Holy Spirit 
to come live inside you, and he will begin to change you from the inside out. I said, Michael, do you want to ask God to do that? He said, yes, and we prayed. We got down by his coffee table, and we asked Jesus to save him. I watched Mike get baptized. I watched his life change. He lost his family, but he has a relationship with his daughter to this day. And, um, and, but Jesus changed his life. And, um, and can I say to you that if that's where you are today, that God wants to save you too? Maybe you came this morning with a friend or a family member, and you're thinking, I really didn't know if God is real. And you heard me talk about Mike, and you said, that's me. That's where I'm at. I, I, I'm at loss. I, I don't know where to turn. And I am messed up everything I've ever touched. And I need God to come into my life and change me. I want to I let you know that in just a moment we're going to stand and sing. And the way we do this is we have a response time where each of us as individuals take a moment to respond to what God is saying to us. And there'll be pastors down front, and we'll be glad to pray with you and talk with you. And if you want to put your trust in Christ this morning, we are here for you. And you can come at the end of service. You can come next week. I don't care. But we're here for you. And I want to invite you to respond. Don't leave here today. If you want to trust Christ and you're ready to do it, come. And we'll help you. Just like Mike, you can be saved today. Your sins can be washed away. You can have a new life. And then, brother or sister, what has your attitude been towards work? Are you serving the Lord Jesus or are you still working for a human boss? Fire your human boss. Start working for Jesus. Put him, overlay him over all authority in your life and say, you know, I'm serving Christ. He's my boss. And I'm going to serve him with all my soul. I'm going to serve him with all my heart. And, uh, and I'm going to let him, when he convicts me about griping and complaining, I'm going to stop it. And I'm going to let him lead me and guide me and give me a whole new attitude towards work towards other brothers and sisters in Christ and towards my boss and, and towards everything in my life. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Maybe you need to repent. You just need to bow your head when we stand and sing. You just say, oh God, I realize now I am miserable at work and it's my own fault. And I'm coming to you, Lord. I'll make you my boss. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. I don't know how God has spoken to you, but when we respond to him in just a moment, would you just be obedient to what he's saying to you? He loves you. He's not going to mess up your life. There's so many of us here that can testify to how Jesus changed us and made us new. And we're not perfect. We're still growing. But so many of us know what it's like when Jesus is in charge. And we want you to know that too. So when we stand and sing, we invite you to come. Brothers and sisters, I invite you. If you need an attitude adjustment, would you just set your eyes off of your problems, off of your struggles, put your eyes on Jesus for these few moments. Say, Jesus, help me put it all in perspective. I want to follow you fresh. I want you to be my boss. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the teaching and your scriptures, so clear and plain. How you want us to shine brightly, have a life of joy in Christ every day, no matter where we are, who we're with, what we experience. Teach us to keep our eyes on you. For we ask it in Jesus' name.